Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk Talking. I'm Cheryl. And I'm Sherry. And we're back again today, and we have a new topic. Today we're talking about inclusion. And I have learned so much from working with the psychologists in the school division about their feelings about inclusion and how... The, how they look at it from their perspective. And we were hoping to have a psychologist on with us today, but we're going to save that for a future podcast because we thought it might get a little bit long because Sherry and I have a lot to say about it. <laughs> so go. As usual. As usual. <laughs> so when Cheryl broached the subject of having inclusion be one of our topics, and uh, yeah, we're both quite passionate about this topic as well. And I think for myself it's because... It's so elusive to define, and people are all over the map with what they believe inclusion to be. So if you don't ever define it, and you don't know exactly what you want to achieve, there's not a lot of success in achieving it, in my view. You know, it, it has to be, in order to measure whether you're making it and have outcomes and all the rest, you know how I am on outcomes, you need to be able to um, say this is inclusion, and that's a problem. Um, well, you know, we have come a long way, uh, from where we were 20, 30, 40 years ago. We really, I mean, even 20 years ago, well, even 10 years ago, we had quite a few special needs classrooms and those kids were grouped together and they didn't really interact too much with the rest of the school. They had their own group and their own thing that they were doing. When, um, when I grew up. You did not see any oh, different no, children. So for sure. the children did go to an alternative school in in the, uh, the community yeah. I grew up in, and um, we we never saw those children. We didn't know what right. the medical needs were, or we didn't understand any of that, and um, it was kind of out of sight, out of mind, and that was good with everybody. Yeah, and everybody was just hidden away there, <laughs> and. So we have moved towards more inclusion, and I think it's a good thing overall. I, I think it's incredible what's happened. In my view, it's incredible, really, what's happened, because I think, you know, when you um, look on television or you're watching um, uh, online or, or anything like that, differences are celebrated now. Oh, and, yeah. and I think you hear a lot about people and, and groups lobbying that people would recognize their differences and be okay with it. And of course, you know, we did go from, you know, all those people and, and individuals, even after school, they were institutionalized and you didn't see anything with differences per se. Um, we've gone from that to really accommodating within the community, the healthcare system, the school system, all of those people and tried to, um, uh, and have fostered a lot of empathy and understanding for uh, all the different syndromes and differences. Yeah. I, I think people have a, a much better awareness and comfort level, I think, with anyone who has a, a learning difference or a physical uh, disability. But um, one of the uh, things that is a difficulty with inclusion that I find and is probably the biggest barrier in my mind to Mine too, yeah. to uh and you don't even know what I'm going to say yet but, I, but you, you you agree that's good <laughs> is the lack of professional support 
it's it's just not there for the kids. So it, when we used to have kids in segregated classrooms, they were not all on the exact same level, but they were all on a similar level. So the things that they were learning, for example, if they needed to learn um, housekeeping skills or safety skills or how to be in the community, how to be cooking, cooking, safety in the community, cleaning, whatever it was, they were all on that same level and they were all learning that together as a group. And so the teacher didn't have to do too much differentiation because she could do the the planning and uh, go, okay, well, we're going to work on cooking, like like you say, and during cooking we're going to work on math and see what kids have math skills, can they... Do they know what a half a cup means? Do they know what... So we're working on fractions. On functional but, skills. Yeah, functional yeah. skills. But we're working on math through the functional skills. But now these kids are in a classroom and maybe they don't know what fractions are and they don't know how to cook and they need to know how to cook, but they're in grade seven and the rest of the class is has started algebra or you know, whatever, and they're not there. So how does the teacher then accommodate that student in her class other than just plunking them at a table with some blocks and saying, count these blocks, that's your math program. Do you know what I mean? For sure. And and again, um, compounding that is that same classroom teacher in the last, you know, 20, 30 years also now has, through... The, the new model of social promotion, her class is no longer homogeneous. So she used to teach a grade three class and it had grade three competencies and virtually all the children were in in this at the same level, give or take a year, a year mm-hmm. forward, year back. And that was a really comfortable zone for teachers to be able to accommodate everybody. But now you have children and the span is more like you know, four or five years, yeah. and then you also have children, we've talked about it, that, that have behavioral issues, emotional issues, you've got a, a whole little chunk of kids who have developmental language delay, so they're not understanding and processing mm-hmm. at the level they should for the, whatever grade they're in. It's like sitting in the classroom and being listening to a foreign language, and they're struggling along, and they they can't write and they can't read, and so the, her the load for the teachers just crazy, yeah. and but you're trying to include everybody to be successful, and I I think again the challenge of so you don't have behavior and frustration, you you need to be presenting um, the the level of teaching. And the, the, the demand needs to be just just pushing the child a little bit. Well, if she's got like 15 different levels, how can she possibly just present the, the exact right level of, of uh, challenge? Instruction, yeah. And, and so I think, again, teachers have a lot of little people who are being given tasks they really can't do. And then they're frustrated and they don't want to do it and they're... Or, or they're bored. They're or... bored, yeah. I see a lot of that, yeah. So inclusion, to me, if if you're trying to bring children together so they have empathy for differences and that they, you know, care about each other and their friends and all of that, um, we, we also, I mean, we deal in social um, communication and children have social 
communication and developmental differences and they're really not on the same level say of following let's say someone wants you to come and play ponies with them well if i don't follow directions at all and they're saying you pony you're supposed to stand over there and you're supposed to i want you to um keep these guys in the corral and but that child's not understanding a word they're saying, so they're just running around like a pony, and then they're frustrated and <laughs> clash, you know? It, or or even, you know, we've talked about maybe they have an educational assistant with them at recess so that they don't run away or whatever, and that educational assistant becomes a barrier because the kids won't invite them at all then because they the kids will talk to the educational assistant rather than talking to the child because the educational assistant is sort of the proxy for the child yeah and or or the or the little the little girls who are going to look after any child who's got a got any uh, any issues so they're going to be the caregiver right or or they're going to be the the, you know babysitter themselves and we don't want them to do that we're trying to foster some sort of independent skill in this child and and so you, you have all those dynamics that are making it very hard to make inclusion work at the level we want it to be well for yeah and I guess it gets back to your first issue about a definition of what 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 is inclusion and what do we want from it because for me I know when we first started talking about this I'm thinking well inclusion is the ultimate goal but it it really the ultimate goal is the best possible education for every single child right and it's individualized yeah so that you know is it is it the best education if the child is sitting in the corner, segregated from the rest of the class, while the rest of the class is studying something else, and uh, they're sitting over there with their EA doing a completely different task, or maybe they're out in the hallway delivering newsletters or filling the pop machine or whatever? I don't call that inclusion. I, I don't think it's inclusion. And it's also not instruction, right? Because that child isn't necessarily learning the things that they need to learn to meet their potential. Yeah, because I've I've been, I've experienced situations where a child's delivered mail for six years. Yeah, yeah. You know, like okay, <laughs> how much better can I get at delivering mail? You know. Yeah. But it is. Have they grown? Me, what, big, what is their yeah, growth in this? It's busy work. It's it's not. They need to get on to. They need to be spending that valuable school time where there's somebody who could teach them a new skill and and. A, a functional skill. A competency yeah. that they're missing. Yeah. 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 So there there are definite, definite difficulties. I, I would go back also to that topic, uh, pull in that neuroscience research that says, you know, if you really want to change a child's abilities or their, their brain functioning, you have to do it intensively and frequently. And if you get so many, that huge, huge diversity within the classroom and, and you don't have the professionals and you don't have the time, really no children are, even the children right. who, who would quote, quote, be in the normal stream, um, even those children, I think, do suffer to some degree because their time is, is pulled in one direction or another. Mm-hmm. off of what they should be doing that that maximizes their potential yeah you know it's it's taking staff time to uh to provide some level of of support 
for, for students with disabilities. And that level is nowhere near sufficient. But then that time is also, as you say, drawn away from the more typical learner. And maybe there are trade-offs because people say, well, it's a socialization thing. And I do get the comfort level and the compassion level part of it. But I don't see a whole lot of people socializing with people with disabilities after high school. Do you know what I mean? Like everybody just kind of goes their separate ways and I mean they might greet them on the street but they're not calling them up to go golfing or to go out for dinner or go to a movie or whatever they're and it's on a continuum I yeah think, you know you get you get situations where developmentally children who are trying to be included with their same age peers all the way through but that developmental gap is huge. It's we huge. Ta we've talked about some examples of that, you know, uh, children sitting in a class and they're developmentally three in junior high. Or high school. Yeah, or high school. Like I, I, I think of uh, 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 the student who's 17 years old and she's got, a, you know, a cognitive and language level of a three-year-old. Well, in her rural high school, the thing to do was, you know, to go out and have a bush party. Well, as kind and nice and accepting as all of the rest of her classmates were, they didn't invite her to the bush party because the students themselves knew that that was not a good idea. It would not be safe. It was, you know, not appropriate. So, But I suppose the other side of that is all, all their lives they um, were educated alongside and saw a child that had struggles and then became more empathetic to what their needs would be I mean that's right that's the trade-off but it's uh, to me the ultimate has to be is that child who who is developmentally three are they being given the very best education they possibly can are they getting and in our terms are they getting the um, best practice speech and language programming that they can get and I would say we we really fail with those those children who have uh, quite severe complex delays. Uh, we just we we didn't have the time. We didn't have the um, uh, model that would let us do it. Well, we've right. never we've never right. and no. it still doesn't happen. Today. No, no. And I guess we can do so much. Oh my oh, gosh! If we yeah. were just given the opportunity. Well, I guess yeah. And I I know I've touched on this before, and I I sort of hate to say it because I don't know if it irks people, but. It, 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 I guess it comes from my early experience in the U.S. of, you know, having a caseload of 35 at one school and having to, having to have, by law, you know, monthly progress meetings on every single IEP goal for that student. So the, the, the progress monitoring and the programming and the planning... Whether it was done, you know, as a pull-out, whether the needs of the child required pull-out therapy or whether they required me, you know, making and modeling and coming into the classroom with an augmentative system or whatever it might be, that that level of support, we just don't have it. Well, and, and also that part, that, that measurability that's built into it. I'm going to do this programming. It's like diagnostic therapy, right? I'm right. going to do this program and I'm going to see how successful they are. But at any point, 
I, if I'm in there and working with the child, I'm going to be able to make a turn this way or this way, even within the daily session, yeah. where paraprofessionals don't have that. They're following, and we've asked them to follow this exactly the way I laid it out. But if we're not back for four months, or, yeah. or if they're only assessed annually, um, how can you tell if what you're doing is making a difference? You know, you have to be able to measure it all and, right. and have it in in a structure yeah. where you you can um, ensure they're getting what they need. Ethical. And we've... Ethical. We, yeah. <laughs> and we've talked about the um, social learning that goes on on the part of the typical learners in the classroom, but we haven't yet talked about or touched on the the learning that... the social and independence learning that goes on for our kids with disabilities like do they have a quality of life social situation within the classroom is that um you know do they get invited to birthday parties do they get invited to sleepovers are they you know included um on the you know ball team or or whatever it it happens to be um and there's a lot of times i find that they're just isolated. And I think, again, that's where I don't think parents or teachers or administrators would have ever had an opportunity to see. Given the chance, speech paths would get right in there and help facilitate other children to play with another child, how to turn take, uh, how on the playground, how you could get this child to be able to play. That is their role, and, and we have a lot of skills to do it but we just don't and haven't had the opportunity to do it right so one of the things that we were both fortunate enough to see was uh, uh, our, our work a system that we were working in was to work with a great team and of course that takes time right you need to have the professionals there you need to have them have a sufficiently low caseload that they can meet as a team you and need know the students and well. know the students well you need to have teachers that can participate parents you know everyone that can participate and in my opinion you need to have um, a really skilled case manager or team leader or whatever you want to call them who can look at the goals and keep the team focused on the goals and you need to meet frequently like previously in one of my jobs we met every month on every student and we reviewed every goal for every student every month to make sure that they were staying on track and if they weren't we had to come up with a new plan and we've talked about this I mean with the level of intervention that we could ever provide with that the model that we were faced with in Saskatchewan it was like an annual assessment and then maybe go to an IAP meeting and yeah um, maybe when you talk about this whole concept about of inclusion there are going to be times when it is best to be in the classroom but there's going to be other times when it's best not to be in the class classroom and in a lot of the interventions and, and you want that intensity and frequency, you want to really make a change, a permanent change in the child's uh, abilities, then you, yes, you have to have a team that's really got great structure and, and knows exactly, you know, what the plan is. Um, one, of the, one of the really positive um, inclusionary strategies that I was uh, able to participate in was um, 
a use of a visual schedule, and um, this was um, designed and, and promoted um, online. It was a, a dedicated class of autistic students, and some of them were nonverbal, but lower functioning students, and they used their visual schedule, and what they had was task boxes, and then uh, they were able to go and get their their box that was on a certain um, um, subject, say math, they go get their math task box, but each child had within that box um, uh, materials that were for the goal they were working on specifically for their own specific plan. So they so. weren't all working on the same thing, but they all knew that this was the time for math. And so the goal was that the person who was supporting them, whether it was an, an educational assistant or the teacher or whatever, that they promote and facilitate the students to be independent so that they knew they didn't need any help uh, and they weren't being catered to. They went from their math box then on to, say, their fine motor box and then they were going to go on to their science boxes. Language arts and so yeah, on. Yeah. yeah. and uh, But you can see how that works so well with to work in the regular classroom and have children participate at the level they can, but independently. Well, it's the independence. Yeah. It's the independence, which kind of brings us to another uh, topic that we've hit on a little bit, but is the use of educational assistance assigned to individual students. In my experience, in some cases, Assigning an educational assistant, first of all, these are people who are completely dedicated to the students. They, I mean, virtually just love their students. They, they actually do a lot of times do what we wish that we were yeah, doing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They get, Working they, with the students themselves. They get right in there and they know these students and they know their needs and they want to help them. But unfortunately, because they don't have enough supervision and guidance and so forth from the professionals, they end up overhelping them. And so they they foster dependence rather than independence. And a good example of this is uh, one year in a school division that I was working, the educational assistants actually went out on strike. And when they came back after four months or six months or however long it was, the students had all gained quite a bit of independence. So students who previously needed an EA to help them get dressed for recess, for example, no longer did because they wouldn't. They weren't going out for recess because they weren't getting dressed. So they learned to get dressed, you know. And so there's all these kinds and of. And that's back to supervision again, and, yes. and understanding and knowing the goal. And I think all of those um, support staff uh, members can be taught to do that. But if you don't have a, a regular um, arrangement and that you yeah. see them, how can you? teach them or build capacity in them. You, you really right. can't. We talked about the fact there are three different sort of assignments for um, professional support staff. And, and that would be one of them, that you're assigning that student to one child and they're overseeing them and they know them really well and they, you know, uh, uh, are there are their babysitter in some instances, right? All day they're out for with them at recess and et cetera, et cetera. But then there is the other um, assignment where, again, you could actually facilitate um, having um, 
paraprofessional staff and like speech and language assistants where you're, you have an assigned person who's going to do this programming, not work with a student, mm -hmm. but they're actually assigned to uh, either they're you know, working with the OT and they provide OT programming or they provide maybe even uh, personal care or they, but they're trained and they have the, they've built capacity over the years to do the interventions with a lot of efficacy and they're, but they are supervised, like in, in speech pathology, they have to be supervised every, t I think, 10th session, isn't it? I think that's it. And Our listeners will correct us if we're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, uh, so that uh, I, I do think that there is a, a true uh, um, role for that level of support staff in you know, delivering communication um, programming. And then the third group is the um, one the, the support staff that's just generally in the classroom for the teacher. So if you're a kindergarten teacher and you have 25 kids, she just needs someone to help her and she's going to guide and supervise that that person. But um, all of all of those levels are part of how is do we best um, support students to be included in classroom activities and facilitate children to, you know, be able to do what the rest of the class is doing. So I think that there is there is room for all three, probably. Be I think so. interested in what other people have to say, as you say. Yeah. Well, we should probably wrap it up here, or did you have anything else to I add? I think that was it that okay. I... Okay, all right. I, again... Let's, let's try to define inclusion, and then I think we, we have yeah. a good starting spot. <laughs> that, that would be good. Let's start there. <laughs> so, for Let's Talk Talking, I'm Cheryl. And I'm Sherry. Let's talk. Let's talk.